Thanks for listening to the nice podcast. I'm Dave Delaney. If you haven't noticed, we've taken a little bit of a hiatus over the last several months. Uh, A big revelation was found. I have ADHD, and that explains a whole lot. And of course, naturally, as a veteran podcaster, I started another podcast all about it, and it's called ADHD Wise Squirrels, and you can find it at wisequirrels.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search ADHD Wise Squirrels. Pop over and have a listen. Let me know what you think. Thanks. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Passion is infectious. And when people are exposed to other people's passions, even if they don't share those passions, mm. that passion is infectious. So I don't have to love the Boston Red Sox, but I can appreciate the people who are passionate fans of the Boston Red Sox. Nice. 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 Nice with Dave Delaney. Welcome to the Nice Podcast, all about communication, collaboration, and becoming better leaders. I'm your host, Dave Delaney from futureforth.com, where we help fast-growing tech companies retain talent and improve culture so you have happier, more connected teams. Today, I'm speaking with David Meerman Scott, the author of 12 Amazing books, including New Rules of Marketing and PR. It's kind of the uh, one of the Bibles for marketers. <laughs> and the Wall Street Journal bestselling uh, book that I'm excited to talk to you about, Fanocracy. He's a marketing and business growth strategist, an entrepreneur, and advisor to emerging companies. David, welcome to NICE. Thanks, Dave. So good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks. I've been looking forward to chatting with you. I always like to start these shows off with the question, what is the nicest thing someone has done for you recently? The nicest thing someone has done for me recently. So um, as you may know, I'm a huge fan of The Grateful Dead. (laughs) Uh, I've seen 83 concerts and um, I'm I'm just a huge fan of it. And I wrote a book called Marketing Lessons from The Grateful Dead with my buddy Brian Halligan. Brian is um, the co-founder and executive chairman of HubSpot. And Brian happens to own Jerry Garcia's Wolf guitar, um, which um, um, is worth many millions of dollars. It's perhaps the most um, valuable guitar in the world. And um, this this week I had a chance to bring the guitar up to a show in Vermont. Um, and it was just super nice to be able to um, curate this amazing instrument for a couple of days um, and allow um, the musicians to play it um, both at the show itself as well as the next day um, the musician one of the musicians played it on their studio album that they were recording mm-hmm. and it's also awesome for the fans so it was nice for me but it was also nice that Brian lent this guitar um, for the musicians to be able to play and lent this guitar for the fans to be able to appreciate. I think it's just super nice. It's not just a guitar that's sitting on the wall in a man cave. It's a, it's a guitar that everyone can experience. Yeah. And I think that is an incredible gesture. And, and you did something similar, right? With the modulus black knife. Is that correct? 
Yeah, good memory. So I have um, uh, Bob Weir guitars. Um, yeah, uh, was was used in about a hundred shows in the mid nineteen eighties, and I actually brought that guitar with me as well up to this show. So they're playing two Grateful Dead instruments at this, um, and it's a band that plays Grateful Dead music, of course. Um, so yeah, I in a small way I do it myself. Um, but the guitar I own is nowhere near as well known and iconic as Jerry Garcia's guitar. Uh, but you know. You know, the theme of nice, um, we, Brian and I, and there's about three or four other people who are very different kinds of, um, I mean, I'm, we're both collectors, although I only have one guitar and Brian only has one uh, guitar that's um, a historic instrument, mm. but we're a very different type of owner than the typical owner that just has it up on, on the wall um, because we feel like we're curating it for the rest of the world to be able to appreciate as well. Uh, and so, yes, my, my guitar has been to a number of shows that people, people have played it. Um, but it's nowhere near as iconic as Jerry Garcia's Wolf. Yeah, but that's pretty amazing too. I mean, such a, such a cool, I mean, when I first heard about that, I thought that is, is such a neat and cool idea for, for, you know, dead fans and, and cover bands and so on who are, who might have an opportunity to, to touch the guitar, pose for a photo with the guitar, let alone actually play it, uh, for, for a, a song or two. Right. Uh, well, a play, that's um, huge. Play, like, that's play huge. it for a song. There were 350 people at the club who were there. Yeah. Um, you know, in the presence of the instrument that um, has Jerry Garcia's juju, he played Jerry Garcia played it for about ten years, and uh. you know, and and in many many hundreds of concerts. Um, and interestingly, um, this idea goes back quite a few years because for a long time in the classical music world, mm. this has been an accepted way to get instruments into the hands of excellent players. You know, um, the people who own a Stradivarius violin are typically not um, the best players who use a Stradivarius in their concerts. Mm. Typically, it's somebody who owns it as an investment, and then they lend it out to the players so that they can play it in um, their concerts. But until very recently, until Brian and I started to loan our instruments out, it had never been used in the rock and roll. This, this, this idea had never been used in the rock and roll world. Hmm. People would buy famous instruments, um, typically at auction, um, but then they would just go into a, um, uh, you know, somebody's man cave for a while, or they would go on the wall of a hard rock cafe somewhere, <laughs> or, they, or they would go into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, all of which are good, but being able to be out and played and enjoyed is just, you know, your word, nice. It's just nice. It really is. Um, so I guess the, it hasn't earned its sticker, which, is, which reads no fun. <laughs> it is fun, man. It is fun to do. Yeah. So the, the story behind my guitar, No Fun, is um, um, Bobby Weir was playing it. Um, he first played it October 23rd, 1983 at Madison Square Garden. I happened to be at that show. Okay. And about a year, a year later, uh, one of their roadies um, put this, uh, a sticker that has the word fun, F-U-N, with the universal symbol for no. And so now this is this instrument is known um, to deadheads as the no fun guitar, and it's so <laughs> it's so ironic that um, it's so much fun to play the guitar, and the musicians love playing it. And then, but it's called the no fun guitar, and and I, it's the only guitar that Bob Weir has owned that has a name. 
most of Jerry's guitars had names. Mm. Um, there was no fun uh, and with Bobby, but Jerry had Wolf, he had Tiger, he had Rosebud. He, t- he typically named his guitars, whereas Bobby Weir only had one that I know of that had a name. That's super cool. And so uh, you you and Reiko wrote uh, or co-wrote Phenocracy. Yes. And a key point in Phenocracy, uh, Phenocracy, I think, is about, you know, about becoming not necessarily the ringleader per se, but connecting like-minded people and then building that phenocracy. And in my own, you know, experiences and writing about networking over the years and speaking on the topic, um, you know, big points of that I've always hit on is like talking to strangers and getting out there and then being generous. And um, I find the this kind of full circle on what we're talking about here with the Grateful Dead's with, with your love of the Grateful Dead and these instruments and kind of the, the, the good, the goodness you're putting out in the world with Brian, you know, when, when you connected with Brian, you, you know, HubSpot was in its infancy, um, but you were getting out there and you guys started talking. So you were talking to strangers, you somehow laid, Oh, you landed on the Grateful Dead being, you know, the thing that you guys are totally connected on that and living in Japan. Um, and you were generous enough to offer him a ticket. So that conversation might've been dead in the water after that. Like, Hey, it was was, great, but you offered him a a ticket. It was a really, really interesting experience. And it changed my life quite literally because, um, the new rules of marketing and PR had just come out. This is 2007. That was the first edition of the book. I'm now uh, have finished the eighth edition, which will be coming out in mid 2022. Mm. Um, but the first edition came out. This is 15 years ago, and they um, had just started HubSpot um, in um, 2006. Uh, and HubSpot didn't have didn't have any clients yet. They had just beta software, only eight employees. And um, I, they reached out to me and said, hey, David, these ideas in your book are the same ideas that we started our company around. And we'd love to have you come come in for a discussion. I said, that, that sounds like fun. I should do that. So um, it was very close to meet my house, only about 10 miles away. So I went into Cambridge and I opened up my notebook computer and on a sticker on my notebook computer was the a Grateful Dead logo. Yeah. And so immediately I tagged myself as a member of the tribe. And um, Reiko and I co-wrote our book, Fanocracy. Reiko, my daughter, she's now 28 years old. Mm. And um, one of the things that we discovered is that the way to build fans is to create a tribe of like-minded people. And the Grateful Dead did that in a huge way. You know, Mm. we are a tribe of like-minded people. And once Brian identified me as a Grateful Dead fan and he was able, oh, my God, I'm a huge fan, too. Look at that sticker on the back of your computer. And we started geeking out about the Grateful Dead. And meanwhile, his colleagues were like kind of rolling their thumbs. What's going on here? (laughs) And um and then, and, and then, as you said, I had a spare ticket for a show that was coming up in a couple of weeks. Say, hey, let's go to the show together. He's like, great, I'm in. And then, um, and then within about two weeks, Brian invited me to join his advisory board as the first member of the HubSpot advisory board. As 15 years later, I'm still on the advisory board. Mm-hmm. So what does that tell us? I think it's super interesting that the idea of simply sharing what you're a fan of in my case, this is just a Grateful Dead sticker on the back of my computer. Sharing what you're a fan of shows what you're passionate about. Yeah. And this idea of passion is something that very few people mix their business life and their personal life. 
you know, they, they have their LinkedIn, which is their business. And, you know, they don't talk about anything of a personal nature on their LinkedIn. And then they have their Facebook for their personal stuff. But they don't do any business stuff on their Facebook. That's what most people do, especially in B2B. Mm. But what I learned when my daughter and I studied this idea of fandom, one of the most surprising things is how important passion is. Uh, passion is infectious. And when people are exposed to other people's passions, even if they don't share those passions, mm. that passion is infectious. So I don't have to love the Boston Red Sox, but I can appreciate the people who are passionate fans of the Boston Red Sox. Um, and this idea of sharing what you're passionate about in your business life is something that's really interesting. I'll give you an example in my daughter's world. So when we were writing the book, um, she was finishing up her undergraduate degree, which she did at Columbia University in neuroscience. And then she started going to medical school, which she's now graduated from. Mm. And she's now an emergency room, an emergency room doctor at Boston Medical Center. Oh, wow. And, you know, as we're making this recording, um, it's tough at BMC. You know, lots of people come in with COVID and they have to, the doctors like my daughter have to be protected head to toe with personal protective equipment, mm. PPE, and they've got, you know, mask and a hairnet and gloves and, and, you know, basically everything but their eyes are covered. Mm. Um, they look like an alien when they're coming in to talk to a patient. Now, can you imagine you're scared? You've got a health condition. Perhaps it's COVID. Perhaps it's something else. But, oh, my God, I'm in the hospital and I'm, I'm frightened. And then this alien doctor comes in. You can only see their eyes. That's scary. So um, what Reiko does and what some of the other doctors do is they have, as part of their uniform, the things that they love. So Reiko started by just putting a pin or several different pins um, on her, um, I don't know what you call it in the doctor world, shirt, but that's not the right word. Right. Um, and so she would wear sometimes a Black Lives Matter pin or a rainbow pin, um, and for example. And then she started to wear a mask um, that had um, one of the Boston sports teams on it. She happens to be a big Boston Bruins fan. Mm. Um, and then Boston Medical Center found that this was working really well with patients because now they had a reason to relate to the doctor. It's not just an alien coming in. You can only see their eyes. Here's a Red Sox fan or a Boston Bruins fan coming in. Yeah. Um, so they actually created team BMC sweatshirts huh. that they can wear over the rest of their doctor uniform. Mm -hmm. And the BMC, team BMC sweatshirts are in the logos of the Boston sports team. So they can wear a team BMC sweatshirt that has a Boston uh, Bruins logo or a Boston Red Sox logo on it. And the patients come alive and it immediately breaks down the fear because all of a sudden you're not dealing with an alien doctor. All of a sudden you're dealing with a human, a human who loves a sports team. And it doesn't even matter if you're not a fan of the same sports team. You've humanized yourself. And, you know, I think in, in, in the B2B world, it's especially true that we very real, rarely humanize ourselves. Mm -hmm. And one of the most simple ways to do that is just simply to share the things that you love. Because what you love, your passions are infectious. And, and, and people don't need to share it. People don't need to share the fact that I love the Grateful Dead. They don't need to, they don't need to share that. But they can appreciate that I do. And that's important. It absolutely is. In, in the book, she wrote about 
uh, in, in one of her sections, she wrote about um, meeting one of her professors uh, and about a similar story of, of you know, meeting a like-minded person, in, in, in their case, sharing a, a love and a passion for poetry. Um, and in the book, she wrote, learning how to incorporate all of who I am into my professional life may be not only a better health provider, but also a happier person. And so with that with that point, how do you recommend, you know, uh, you know, a, a B two B type of professional be able to incorporate more of their their passions into their profession? Yeah, and that that was a really cool story that Rico shared. Yeah, it was, it was. when it was when she was an undergraduate at Columbia, mm. and she was going on an interview for the possibility to work as an intern in a lab and um this was a you know big important doctor that she was applying for and um and you know she was young she was probably what 19 or 20 and and never really gone on these big interviews before and she walked in and um the um the shelves of this um doctor's office uh, were filled with books and, and particularly filled with poetry books. And they ended up spending half an hour talking about poetry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? They weren't talking about, you know, doctor stuff or um, healthcare stuff. They were talking about poetry. And, and so that was when she realized, and it was a big moment for her, that was when she realized that she can share the things that she loves in her professional life. And, um, and so I think um, that... It's just simply a matter of giving yourself permission to um, to break down the barriers between your personal life and your professional life. Um, people want to do business with people. They don't want to do business in, in, in the B2B world. You know, we focus on, oh, we're going to sell to, I don't know, General Electric. We're going to sell to um, United Airlines. We're going to sell to Fidelity Investments. You think my customer is United Airlines or Fidelity Investments or IBM. No, mm-hmm. your customers are people that work in those organizations. And, um, and so sometimes we forget that. And the idea of humanizing yourself, the idea of, of creating ways that you can break down the artificial barriers and have a, a true connection with other human beings. Um, and, and the way to do that is just simply to be thinking about what I can share. So it can be as simple as in your LinkedIn profile near, you know, it doesn't have to be at the top, but in your LinkedIn profile, when you've got your bio, you know, say, you know, I, I, I think I've got it on mine. David Merrin Scott has been to 83 Grateful Dead concerts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, now what does that have to do with my work? Well, I guess I've, ri- I've written a bo- book about the Grateful Dead, Marking Lessons from the Grateful Dead. So, so maybe it has a little bit to do with it, but it really doesn't have much to do with my work. I think you were at a few of those shows before the book uh, was conceived. Uh, quite, well. a, quite a few, quite a few. Let, so, yeah, um, but yeah. very few people do that, Dave. Yeah. Very few people do that. Um, and then cr- create some posts. So, um, Hey, you, you know, you, whatever it is, you, whatever it is you love, Peloton, um, a sports team, uh, a rock band in my case is one of my passions. I also love to surf mm-hmm. and sometimes I'll, I'll put something up on my social networks about surfing. Um, or, you know, perhaps you're into bird watching or perhaps you're into skiing or, you know, whatever it is that you're into, share that on your business social media 
um, pages. Share that on your bio on the company website. That's important stuff. It really is truly important um, to be able to share with people what you're passionate about. One passion that, uh, I, I, well, we share a few, but one passion that, that I believe we share is a passion for, for travel. Um, you lived in Asia for nearly 10 years. Uh, and was it in Toyuka, where you met Yu Curry, your wife, or and excuse me for butchering the the name there. If oh I'm no, in. that's okay. <laughs> you, you actually got it right. It's Yu Curry. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So I moved to Tokyo when I was twenty six, mm. and um, uh, I, I I moved to uh, open the uh, Asian office of a Wall Street economic consulting firm. And so I was doing B two B marketing and sales all by myself. I didn't know a single person when I landed in Tokyo. Hmm. Um, and I created a, a branch office of the company. It was super interesting. And, and yes, that's where I met, met my wife. And we lived in Tokyo for seven years. We got married and then we moved to Hong Kong for a couple of years. Reiko is our daughter. She's obviously mixed race, Japanese and uh, American. Um, but yeah, I love to travel and I'm a geek. I'm a geek when it comes to, and I, that's why I was able to tell you that I went to 83 Grateful Dead concerts, yeah. and I've been to 832 concerts of all different bands, um, uh, and I've been to 107 countries, all 50 states, and all seven continents, and I know that because I have a spreadsheet <laughs> that, <I keep. laughs> that, um, that that I list them. But yeah, I do love travel. So, uh, what are your what are your favorite places to travel to? Well, Ireland is a natural because uh, as a Canadian, I went to Ireland in in ninety well ninety. But then I went back in 98 and met my wife there who lives, ah, who's from nice. Tennessee, uh, which is how I live in Nashville now. So uh, we, we lived in Toronto for seven years, had two kids. Uh, we still have them. Uh, <laughs> although, eh. They're 15 and 16 right now, so uh, yeah, they're, we'll see. Uh, they're in that they're in that active <laughs> stage of wanting to break away. I get it. Is that what they call it? Active. Yeah, active. Stage. <laughs> I can think of other they, words. <laughs> they end up coming. They end up coming back. At least in my experience, they they need to they need to show their independence, and then then after a certain couple of years, they'll come back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's I, I hear good things about about the. They're actually Irish twins of all, so it's uh, kind of funny that way. We always joke that we should have seen it coming. Uh, A quote that I love about travel is the world is a book and those who do not travel read only one page. Uh, And it was Ah, St. Augustine. That's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think honestly, like uh, one of our, uh, my wife and I, Heather, you know, one of our family mottos is experiences over things. And over the holidays. Yeah. Yeah, over the holidays we took the kids to uh to France and Belgium and uh Luxembourg for a minute and then down to Switzerland to see my brother who lives in Bern. Um and uh, and our kids have been to Iceland. They've been to other countries and it you know, they have friends who've never left Tennessee, let alone yes. the US. Yes. What are your thoughts on that and and how can we inspire others? And I know we're a little off topic here as far as leadership and things perhaps, but I don't know. What What are your thoughts there? I think this is um, a super important um, question because uh, I learned so much by living outside the United States for, for nearly 10 years. And I'm not suggesting everybody can live outside their country, but certainly they can visit because um, I learned to see my country from the perspective of an outsider. Mm. And, and I think that when you're open to an experience in another country, what you're realizing is that we're actually all humans are more alike than we are different. Mm. And, you know, I, I, um, 
I'm going to riff a little bit. I, I mm. think that the Facebook algorithm is the most destructive technology ever invented. Mm-hmm. Um, I really believe that what the Facebook algorithm does is it drives people into um, polarizing uh, groups uh, because Facebook is optimized to get people to want to stay on the platform longer. And what they realized is that when you're angry, you stay on the site longer than when you're not angry. So they get people riled up and angry and they um, they get people to believe in conspiracy theories and to pit one type of person against another, mm-hmm. whether it's one country against another or, or whatever it might be. And so I believe that's very destructive from the perspective of Facebook. But I believe also that the more you can experience in your own world this idea that, no, these people really aren't that different, whether it's in 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 my country, the red states versus the blue states, um, you know, people who don't travel in the United States have tend to have a feeling that, oh, I live in wherever it might be a red state or a blue state. And those other states that are the other color are bad. Mm. Well, no, they're not. They just have a different outlook. And if you have a chance to travel and meet people who live in those other states who maybe have a different political persuasion, that you can learn to understand and accept that rather than just focus on the idea of what Facebook is doing is pushing you into these these very polarizing tribes. So, yeah, I think you've hit on something that's really, really important, not just traveling internationally, but also even just traveling uh, and certainly within my country where um, where we are, I think, at the most polarized we've ever been in our 200 and however many year history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting from my own, like I've been, I've lived in the States now for 15 years and uh, and have seen much of the country uh, before that and, and certainly over the last 15 years. And it is, yeah, it, it is a, a troubling sort of period right now where uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about that polarization with social media, because, you know, like yourself, I mean, I've been a big proponent of social media, uh, you know, since, since the infancy of, of social networks and, you know, BBSing before that, but uh, I'm not getting a little nerdy there. Uh, you're dating, your, you're dating I, yourself. <laughs> yeah. I actually bought a Commodore 64 a few years ago. Uh, nice. and, yeah, yeah. And it's, there's a, there's a wireless adapter you can get for a Commodore 64 that attaches to the internet now. So you can actually oh, con- wow. you can call BBSs again. they actually still okay. exist. Oh, oh, you know what? I bought an iPhone 13. <laughs> I bought an iPhone 13 when it first came out. Yeah. And I was chit chatting with the salesperson at Apple and I said, you know, I've still got my iPhone 1. And he goes, oh, really? You should check and see if you've got the box. Because if you have the box and you have your, your iPhone 1 handset and the serial numbers matched, it match, it's worth $2,000. I'm like, ah. what? My <laughs> iPhone 1 is worth more money than my iPhone 13 that I'm buying right now. And in fact, I did. I'm such a geek about like saving boxes. I did have the original box from no my kidding. iPhone 1. I did. I did. I had it. And all the bits and pieces, the, the little plastic bits and stuff, I had all that. That's so, amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm looking, I'm looking at it right now. It's in my trophy case. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, wow, you know, um, um, uh, obscure kind of... Um, um, obsolete technology all of a sudden becomes a collector's item. Who would have thought, right? Yeah, and in such a short amount of time too. When you know, when you think about it, so tell that me, two thousand two thousand seven was when the iPhone one came out. There you go, and I think that's when you started tweeting, right? Two thousand seven. Yeah, it me is. too. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what are your thoughts as far as what can be 
done with with so the sort of state of social media i know that's a huge topic and <laughs> yeah it is it, it's a it's an enormous topic i think the biggest problem is the algorithm and the i think the biggest problem is that facebook is not um stepping up to focus on the algorithm mm. and they've brainwashed everybody from mm. their users to the media to members of congress to believe that the problem is um not their algorithm but the problem is that people are posting things that um are inappropriate and that their job is to then police that and take it down and they t- they talk about how they have thousands of people who um, are employed by facebook to read content and then remove content that violates their term of service now there's nothing wrong with that that's not that's not a bad thing mm-hmm. sure you can police the content and remove it yeah. but that's not the biggest problem the biggest problem is the algorithm so i think until members of congress and 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 others recognize that the true problem is the algorithm and how people are being driven into these polarized ways that it's going to this problem will continue it will not go away by selectively selectively finding um content to remove it's a whack-a-mole you're constantly finding more content you have to remove it's a never never-ending thing but if you're able to change the algorithm so that you show people content in a different way than they do now which is um focused on pol- polarization and 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 getting people to be angry because that's what allows them to stay on the facebook longer mm-hmm. um that would make a big difference and i think facebook is 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 by far the biggest problem although all social networks have these kinds of al- algorithms so twitter and instagram and, and and whatnot all have them but i think facebook is the worst um and this was actually one of the things that prompted us my daughter reiko and i to write fanocracy because mm-hmm. um you know it was maybe i don't know five or six years ago and i was talking to her and i said you know um i'm known as somebody who has been a champion of social media you know i wrote about social media in my in my book new role new rules of marketing pr that came out in 2007 people know me as somebody who's been a cheerleader mm-hmm. for social networks and and you know is on the various social networks pretty early and and so on yeah and i and i'm like i kind of feel like i've created a i know and i'm not taking credit for it but created a monster in a way mm-hmm. and um and i said but at the same time uh I'm such a fan of the things I love. I love to surf. I love the Apollo Lunar program. I love the Grateful Dead. And she started to talk to me about the things that she loves including K-pop, Korean pop music. Mm-hmm. She's also a big fan of Harry Potter and we started talking about that. So we recognized as we were having this discussion. This was I remember distinctly we were in a car ride. Um we we both kind of recognized that we had a different view of what marketing could be and really it was coming back to being human coming back to yeah. um the things that we love and um so i and this is kind of cool how this happened but i decided i wanted to write a book about fandom and i started to do some research i spent about 6 months doing research i spoke with a bunch of people about what they're a fan of i spoke with a bunch of companies that have developed a fan base Um and I kept asking Rayco about well tell me about Harry Potter why do people love Harry Potter why is this so interesting tell me about Korean pop music K-pop why is this so interesting tell me about um Comic-Con you know she she gets dressed up with her friends and goes to Comic-Con and I, you know to me that's 
I mean, I, I, I totally dig it in terms of a fandom and a, and a tribe of like-minded people. That's super cool. But I wouldn't want to get dressed up as right. my favorite, as my favorite character and go to a, go to a convention hall. Sure. And, and so she started to share with me her thoughts. And then I decided I was going to go to Comic-Con, which I did. I, I didn't get dressed up, but I went to Comic-Con. I interviewed some people. And then I finally said, don't be an idiot. Write the book with her. And she's a great writer. I knew she already knew she was a good writer. And so I said, Rako, this is stupid. Why do I keep asking all these questions? Why don't we write this thing together? Yeah. Which, which we did. So we wrote, we wrote, we did the, the remainder of the research and then we wrote the book together. And, um, I got to say from, are, are your um, are your um, children boys, girls, one of each? I've got a old a sixteen year old boy and a and a fifteen year old girl. Okay, so one of each. Yeah. Um, so we've only got one. We've only got Reiko. But um, I was at a Tony Robbins event, mm-hmm. speaking engagement. My wife was with me, and um, Reiko was in um, medical school at the time. Uh, no, no, she might have just graduated. But anyway, she was um, not with us. Mm. And so um, I opened up the Wall Street Journal because the um, book Fanocracy was coming out that week. And oh my gosh, we're on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. So I, 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 I texted Rako and I said, once you've had your tea this morning and you're, <laughs> si- and you're sitting down, give me a call. And she called and I put it on speaker so my wife could hear. And I said, Rako, you are a Wall Street Journal bestselling author. <laughs> and then there was this, there's this like dead silence. And she's like, what? 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 I don't. I don't understand. That's crazy. Yeah, um, that's and, awesome. And so that was. Just, I mean, and you would you would certainly recognize having two children that oh, having yeah. a, a com- being able to make a, a call like that was was super great. I actually so forgot good. what your question was. Oh no, no, no. That's amazing. More or less. More or less. Got got an answer. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's fantastic. I, I mean, yeah. And and by the way, my kids. I think she'd be a hero to my kids because they're you know, especially my daughter, huge Harry Potter fan. And huge nice. K-pop fan as well. Oh, nice. Uh, oh, yeah. Like, I know I know the songs, like, because we listen to them in the car all the time. Yeah. And I never in a million years, I'm not really much of a pop music fan to begin with, let alone K-pop, which is obviously different. Uh, and I and so kind of learning all about that that kind of world. But is I, really, I, is I get it. I, I get oh, it. Yeah, it's yeah. really interesting. And so yeah. Ra- Ra- Reiko's become a bit of an expert in the fandom aspects of K-pop. And um, she actually did a um, she did a couple of different virtual events where she spoke about the fandom aspects of K-pop. And she's got a really deep understanding about having written the book Fanocracy with me and having been a really big fan of K-pop. By the way, her favorite band is called the Stray Kids. I don't know. if It's <laughs> the same one. Is it? <laughs> yeah, there's posters Seriously? in her room right now. I could. Yeah. Yeah. Because yep. um, they're, they're a little bit obscure. They're, I mean, yeah. BTS and some of the others are more po- uh, Blackpink are more popular. But right. I know them, stray, too. Yeah. Stray, stray Kids is the one that Ray goes. Oh, that's so interesting. Ella's all about Stray Kids. And, and it's interesting. the same thing. But it's really weird, too, because uh, not to, <laughs> to riff here for a second, but she she talks about how like there there's like an organization that runs all these groups and it's so yes. and then like talking to me and I'm much more into like old school like kind of Americana folk blues punk rock like that kind of music an old school rock and roll kind of music and 
And so like anti-corporate stuff and the dead are like there. I mean, they personify an anti-corporate yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of thing. And then you've got these, these K-pop bands that are all like, at least seemingly under like one parent company who like pull the strings, like the wizard of Oz or something. I don't really know. It's very and, strange. And it, well, and it, and it is, in, and that's what Reiko dug into. Um, yeah. Big, big time dug into. And it mm. turns out that um, in the very beginning, when these bands come out, they're absolutely controlled by these companies. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like Disney. Uh-huh. Uh, ki- kind, I mean, not exactly, but kind of like Disney, where these big companies hire beautiful looking actor types mm-hmm. um, who can sing and dance. And then um, they write the music and then they create this, these bands and they pay, obviously pay all the expenses to have the albums produced and the videos produced and so on. But then if they start to take off and become popular, then the balance of power shifts to the to the band. Mm. And they have some ironclad contracts that go for a certain number of years. But um, but then they can break free and they can do more interesting things. And it becomes uh. it becomes a fascinating study in um, how much do you need those producers once you reach a certain level of fandom? And there's some that have broken out and done really well. There's some that have broken out and not done well because mm. they needed that support structure to be able to do it right. That's really interesting. Yeah, I guess it'll be a, an interesting kind of case study long term because I, I think for the most part, this phenomenon is is not that old. Like it's only like a decade, it seems anyway. So it would be interesting long long term to see, yeah, how that how that all kind of unravels. And and and, yeah. and it's super it's super interesting to me to look at. I, I my friends all laugh at me, but I I will admit I'm a Miley Cyrus fan. Oh uh, yeah, and, um, of course she's and, talented, man. She's great. super. She's super talented. So she she um, came up through the Disney machine mm-hmm. and. She was, um, you know, she was Hannah Montana. Yep. And um, when she was part of the Disney machine, she would, um, you know, she would do concerts and she was, you know, young teenager type. But then um, when she left um, Hannah Montana, she became her own person Hmm. and did a great job at not only keeping her initial fan base, but growing her fan base, even including someone like me, right? Yeah. Um, and I had a chance to see Miley Cyrus backed by the Flaming Lips at a club in Boston. It was nice. a small, you know, 2,000 person club. It was yeah. fabulous. It was great. But that's an example um, um, of what that same sort of K-pop um, machine initially creates something like Hannah Montana in Korea. And then, um, and then if the artist is truly talented and savvy, they can then um, be, make it even more just like Miley Cyrus has. Yeah, they have the like the power of sort of the big labels did originally before artists had mediums where they could, you know, I, I don't know. If, I guess there's been plenty that have, you know, used social and YouTube and the like to kind of become, you know, what they are now. Um, but it's an interesting, yeah, it's, it's it's certainly an interesting time for, for music that way. Uh yeah, it's fascinating. Um, and, uh, so as far as, uh, getting back to fanocracy for a sec, um, you know, a key point in the book also is, is, and, and to what, what we're talking about here is really bringing like-minded people together as, as yes. I mentioned before. And, and yes. by doing this, you kind of instigate relationships and, and you become Absolutely. sort of that, that 
that centerpiece because you're the one that's bringing people together, whether it's, you know, giving a ticket to a, a new friend to a concert or, you know, I co-founded a couple networking events over the years and, and unconferences and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit because it's kind of like the magic probably. I haven't been to a Tony Robbins event, but it's I imagine it's like the magic that happens at, at these events. And Tony Robbins, of course, wrote the foreword for, for the book. And yes, in it, he, he writes about how you are a lead marketing speaker also at his business mastery seminar. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about that backstory between you and, and Tony Robbins. Uh, super interesting. Um, he, um, started the business mastery program maybe 10 years ago, I'm guessing. Hmm. And, um, and then, uh, he really wanted to have a marketing speaker and, um, he, um, I didn't know it at the time, but he was sort of auditioning marketing speakers. He would invite hmm. people to come and speak at, uh, at business mastery, which typically is between two and four times a year. Hmm. Um, and he would invite people to come and speak. And then, so I got invited in 2014 to come and speak at business mastery. And, um, I didn't recognize that it was an audition, but I'm glad I didn't. Otherwise I would have maybe freaked out a little bit, but, um, but I, I walked into a Tony Robbins event and as I walked into the room, it was the day before I was to speak because I always like to read the room and I tend to like to arrive the day before if I can. Yeah. And if the conference is already going, I will go in the room and just get a sense of the vibe of the room. Mm -hmm. And I had never seen anything like a Tony Robbins event. Um, the music is rock concert volume um they they not only light the stage but they light the audience it's mm-hmm. like the studio audience of a television show okay. uh you know like imagine the oprah show or something like that they sure. light the studio studio audience um and tony makes sure that there's no more chairs than there are people uh-huh. so that if if there's 2146 people in, in the conference that's how many chairs there are mm-hmm. um because there he does not want there to he doesn't want, he always wants the room to feel intimate, even if it's an arena and he, he sells out arenas, you know, 10,000, sure. 12,000 people. Um, so I walked into this room, it was in um, Las Vegas and everyone was up and dancing and high-fiving and hugging. And I'm like, what in the world have I gotten myself <laughs> into? Oh my God. And so, but I'm really, really glad that I went the day before and I just completely ripped up what I was going to speak on and changed it completely over all, I worked all night to change up the speech and did something very different and many things I had never done before in a speech. Um, like I did some push-ups on the stage. I jumped up and down like an idiot. Um, um, I was like, I was like pointing at the audience, which I'd never really done before. So things, things that, you know, really was unique to, to, to my speaking that I hadn't done before. And, um, and I had an, I had a two hour slot. It was a long time to speak. Mm. Uh, and, um, and I, re- I recognize you have to do a lot of things to for, to make a two hour slot work. Yeah. I used mu- I used music a lot um, and, and so on. So um, uh, Tony told me I met him backstage before I went on. He said, "David, I'm really looking forward to seeing you speak. I can stay for about five minutes, and I have to go." And I saw him on the riser, the production riser in the back of the room. I saw him sitting there. And then it was like 20 minutes later, he was still there. And then a half an hour later, he's standing up and his arms are in the air. And he stayed the entire time, two hours. Like, wow, that was cool. He said he was going to stay five minutes and he stayed for the whole two hours. And then um, and then they reached out to me and they booked me for 
um, two or three more events. And I've been speaking at Business Mastery ever since eight years now. That's and, huge. Uh, That's amazing. And, and it's, um, it's been a really, really, really important relationship. Tony is fabulous. Um, he helps people in so many different ways. Um, he's got other programs too. Um, he's got a program called, um, Unleash the Power Within UPW that mm. is, um, uh, very much focused on, on the, f- the entry level into Tony, Lo- Tony Robbins world. And then there's the business mastery program that I do. And then there's something called date with destiny, which is m- more about, um, relationships. Um, uh, and, um, he just has talk about fans. He's got millions of fans. People love Tony Robbins. So I've learned a ton from him. I've become um, tight with a lot of people in the Tony Robbins world. And, you know, they all know I'm a Grateful Dead fan. They all know I'm a surfer. So it, you know, it's, I'm able to let my hair down about the things that I love. And, um, and it's just, it's been a really great experience for me to be a part of that community. Yeah. And I mean, Tony Robbins is awesome. Uh, and I, I definitely enjoyed the content and the documentary on, I believe it was on Netflix a while back. Yeah. I am not, I am not your guru. It's called, I am not your guru. Yes. It's worth watching if you haven't seen it. Um, I am not your guru on, on Netflix. Um, and you know, Tony, the, the producers of that movie have been after Tony for years to do a movie. And he kept saying, no, 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 no. And finally he agreed, okay, well we can do it. Um, and, it does a great job at capturing um, what a Tony Robbins event is like and, and a little bit about what Tony Robbins, the, the man, is like. Um, and uh, I think it was great that once he did agree, he gave the producers full, full and free reign. They could do whatever they wanted. He was not going to exert any editorial control. I give him a lot of credit for doing that because yeah. he didn't necessarily have to do that. And um, they ended up with a great film. It's done really well. Yeah, no, I thought it was it, it was excellent too, and kudos to him for for allowing them to have that kind of access. That's that's super cool. So I want to ask you a couple questions, and then we'll move to lightning round, and we'll wrap up right on time. So very right. quickly, how can companies build and sustain strong cultures in a remote and hybrid era where things are different now? Tough, tough one. Um, I think the video is super important when it comes to making sure that you can um, focus not only on relationships with your colleagues, but also relationships with customers. And um, there's a neuroscience aspect to this. Um, it turns out um, that video, if it's cropped as if you're right next to somebody, our human brain processes that through something called mirror neurons as if you're actually across the way from somebody. So um, imagine you're having dinner with somebody at a restaurant. That's a truly intimate relationship um, mm. of having having dinner with somebody at a restaurant. You're, you know, three or four feet away. Um, uh, very, very powerful from the human emotions perspective. Well, it turns out mirror neurons um, is a, a neuroscience concept that video gives you much of the same thing. And that's precisely why we feel we know a movie star mm. or a television star. I mean, intellectually, you know, you've never met Tom Cruise, but um, you believe you know him because of your mirror neurons kicking in when you see see him on the screen or on, on television, whatever it might be. Mm. Um, and so using that in a, in a hybrid world or a virtual world, super important, but not that many companies truly make good use of video. And let me give you one very specific example um, in the B2B world. So many people in the B2B world use sign-up forms. 
Um, and you know, you're of course ex- experienced in this mm-hmm. as is anybody who does B2B marketing. You know, you have, um, most companies have multiple signup forms, you know, fill out this form to get your our white paper, fill out this form. If you want to have a, uh, a conversation with a salesperson, fill out this form. If you want to have a free analysis of, of, of what you're doing, those sorts of things. Yeah. Well, it turns out if you put a simple video next to that form, and you say you tell people exactly what's going to happen when they fill out that form that can increase the number of people who fill out the form by between 20 and 50 percent that's huge that is between, huge between 20 and 50 percent so uh, if you want to see that in action you can go to my website david push the book me to speak button and then you'll see there's a video right next to the form that I ask people to fill out. And what I say, and I'm paraphrasing now, but what I say in that video is, hey, thanks very much for visiting. Um, I would love to talk with you about um, how I might present at one of your events. Um, if you um, fill out the form, um, I'll, I'll personally get your form and I'll respond very, very quickly. We'll set up a quick call where I can learn a little bit more about what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm basically saying to people, I'm not going to try to sell you. Don't worry about it. Um, and that simple thing of humanizing that online signup form um, can generate between 20% and 50% more signups. And that's just because of the power of mirror neurons, the power of the idea that that um, that people are, you know, they're human and they, they, they want to do business with other humans. That is a great tip. And if you want to see that in action in a few days, maybe a week or so, drop by my website. <laughs> I'm definitely it, going to try it's, that. It, it's really remarkable, Dave. Yeah. That, um, and I've, I've, I've shared this um, particular idea with dozens and dozens of companies and the ones that implement it all tell me that they are have a measurable increase in the number of people who sign up for the form. Well, I'm one to act on advice I get from, from peers and people I respect <laughs> and like. So I will uh, definitely jump on that. All right. Let so, me you'll, move. so you'll see it in action on my site. You can see, I mean, there's other yeah. ways to implement it, but you'll see how I do it. Yeah. And I'll include a link to that in the show notes. So folks can just click the link in the, uh, in their, in their iPhone or whatever they're using to listen. All right. Uh, let me move to lightning round and then I'll wrap up here. Cause I know you got a hard stop. So, uh, some quick lightning round questions. So yeah. com- complete this sentence. Nice guys and gals finish. <laughs> finish with much more fun than those who are not nice. I love it. What's a nice book you recommend to the nice makers? A nice book. I'm I'm a big fan of anything Seth Godin does. So um, he's everything he writes has a human element to it, and mm. uh, I'm I'm lucky to be able to count him as a friend as well. And um, so I can recommend anything that he writes. Yeah, he still replies to my emails, which is always uh, always amazing. amazing. Right? Yeah, Seth yeah. Seth's such a, a sweet, uh, talented, great guy, and uh, and a Joni Mitchell fan, and I'm a big Neil Young fan. So I bet I, we, ah. we probably both uh, canceled Spotify this week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. That's yeah, that is hysterical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been interesting. Uh, okay, uh, how is David nice to himself? Um, I, what's very very important to me is every single day I exercise in the morning 
And there's essentially, I don't have any excuses. I mean, there are some cases I have a very early morning flight. I don't exercise that morning. But I typically will do doubles the next day or the day before so that I exercise um, 365 days, uh, 365 times per year. Mm. And that's really important for me to be fit and healthy. It's really important for me to um, start out my day um by moving my blood and, 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 and doing something physical, especially right now. I live in the Boston area. It's cold as we're recording this um, and being able to get out and move even when I don't go out as much as I do in the summertime. Uh, super, super important to me. Is that uh, it, uh, how long have you been doing that? Like, is that something you've always done or something you picked up at some um, point? I, um, I, I, uh, it's been 11 years now mm. and I, um, I was getting um, unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, um, uh, I wasn't obese, but I was overweight and I went to my doctor and they ran some of the blood tests and said, you know what? You don't have hypertension. You don't have, um, diabetes. You don't have any of these things, but you're getting into the danger zone. I'm like, oh my God, I'm, this is a, this is something I can change. So I, um, I made a huge change in my lifestyle and I, I started to eat differently and I started to, this exercise program and I'm a big believer in mixing up the way that I exercise. Um, and there's nothing wrong with always doing one thing, like always running, nothing wrong with it. But I believe very strongly that doing different things is better. So someday I do weights usually typically two days a week. I do yoga typically two days a week. I swim typically two days a week. Um, but I also do mountain biking. I do surfing. I do Pilates. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I go, I, I like to hike in the woods, you know, like serious exercise style hiking up and down hills and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, th- and those are some of the things that I love to do. And, um, so, um, about 12 years ago, um, I was 60 pounds heavier than I am now. And so it's really you. made a huge difference in my lifestyle. Yeah. Um, but also it's not just that it's, I feel like, you know, the way you ask the question, I'm being nice to myself. It's something that's important for me. Sure. I could be answering more emails if I didn't do that, or I could be writing another blog post if I didn't do that, but that's super important for me. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it's so important at the end of the day. I mean, what's the point of everything we're doing if we, if we just suddenly drop dead at, at a far too early age, God forbid, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. yeah I want to be around for my grandkids. So that's part of the reason Absolutely. why, why no I'm question. doing it. Hopefully not too soon, but <laughs> uh, well, uh, with a 16 year old and a 15 year old now, you want to wait a couple more years. Yeah. Yes. Um, and you wrote a blog post recently, by the way, that really resonated with me, uh, which was, uh, these are the good old days. And you wrote, oh, yeah. you wrote uh, something that stood out to me a lot because I've been, I've been focused on my own mental health over the last couple of years with everything going on. And the fact that you said, you know, I'm focused on the moment. I know I can't change the past and I can't do much about the future besides some prep preparing. What I can change is what I do and how I feel right now in this moment. And I think mindfulness and meditation and just journaling and all that stuff, I think, is really beneficial. I think that's super important. And something you mentioned earlier um, is also something that's very important to me right now, which is. Um, I'm always down for spending money on experiences, less so on spending money for things. Yes. Um, and how, however, I did spend a lot of money to buy a Grateful Dead stage used guitar, but that is because of the experience. Yeah. It's because I'm able to share that with, with musicians and fans. So, um, so yeah, those are some of the, the things I've been focused on recently is, um, is how I can, um, uh, is how I can have more experiences and, 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 you know, one of the things I think about a lot is 
um, I feel like I'm entering the, the last third of my life. The first third of my life was what I call the education third of my life. So it was like formal education, you know, in elementary school and middle school and high school and college, but also like learning a career, learning what, what marketing is and so on. The second half of my career was about building uh, wealth and building um, experiences and building a family. The third part of my life is all about giving back. And I'm focused a lot on this idea of how I can give back, um, give my time, give my money, give my experience back in many different ways. That's that's wonderful. And that's a great way to look at it. And I wish I'd had that. I wish I looked at my life that way much earlier on, but I'm glad I'm where I am now. And I'm, you know, I, I'm giving a percentage of my profit each, each quarter to different charities and causes I care about. Nice. And I'm, what yeah. I'm working on is trying to increase that amount, that percentage that I'm giving away. Um, and, good for you. And oh, it's a good way to keep me trying, like really full steam ahead at trying to grow my business, which, you know, is always a challenge, you know, solopreneur and all that stuff, but right. just growing my business because the thinking about it this way, the better I do, the more I can, I can serve the people I, you know, and the, and the causes I care about most. And so I think, I think about it exactly the same way. Yeah. yeah. It's super important. Exactly. Right. You got to come to Nashville, man. I'm going to buy you dinner. All right. Uh, okay. I'm down for that. I'm down for that. I would love to see it. All right. Last we, we, co we covered a lot of ground um, in the last hour, Dave. We sure did. We sure did. Oh, I love talking to you. I, I've got one last question. If you had a billboard, sure. what would it say? Um, educate and inform instead of inter interrupt and sell. Heck yes. I'm 100% behind you there. I love it. All right, David, thank you so much. I sincerely appreciate your time. It's been a real My pleasure, pleasure, Dave. Thanks thanks a lot for having me on. Thanks, And thanks for taking this discussion in many unusual directions. I really appreciate that. Thanks for listening to the NICE podcast. I would love to include your voice on the show. If you have comments or questions regarding this episode or any episode, whether you might have some NICE communications tips of your own, visit friend.nicepodcast.co. There, you can record an audio comment, and I expect you'll hear it on an upcoming episode. Theme song is Little Jane May, and the end song is Funny Feeling by Alistair Crystal at alistaircrystal.ca. And we'll see you next time. Be nice. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe.